Thank you for tuning into the Freedom Church podcast, where you can catch our Sunday sermon on demand at any time. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the content that's shared every week at our local church in Round Rock, Texas. Here's this week's sermon. Okay, so companies spend millions of dollars on their branding every single year because they recognize the value of having a recognizable logo. Anywhere you go in the world, you know if you see the golden arches, you know it's a McDonald's. You, you know exactly what to expect. You're not going to go in and, and get a pizza, you know, unless it's the McPizza that they had way back in, what was it, the 80s or something like that? You know, but uh, you know exactly what to expect. You, you pick up a phone, you see an apple on the back, you know what to expect. You know exactly instantly what that is. So my question for us to hear this morning is this. What is the defining mark of a Christian? What is the, the, the defining mark of a follower of Jesus? How do you know that somebody is a disciple? How can you tell that somebody is a disciple? Is it uh, that they go to church on Sunday mornings? That might be a, a good start, right? But just going to church doesn't necessarily make somebody a Christian, right? Is it the music they listen to? Is it the, the, the Christian T-shirts that I used to wear back in the 90s when I was in middle school, high school, right? Is it um, the things they don't do? Is it the way they vote? Is it uh, the fact that their life is filled with joy and peace and patience and the fruits of the Spirit? That's probably a good indicator, right? Um, but we're going to look at First John here this morning, and John's going to give us the primary uh, mark of a disciple of Jesus. So let's jump into it. Chapter 2 is where we're going to start. We're going to look at a bunch of uh, all over First John this morning. But chapter 2 is where we're going to start. It says this, verse 3, And by this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, okay, so we know we know him if we keep his commandments. But if you're like me, we throw that scripture up there, this, uh, this immediately brings up some more questions. Namely, all right, John, which commandments are we talking about here? Are we talking about all the commandments? Are we talking about just the New Testament, just the, the words of Jesus? Or are we including the Old Testament and, and all 613 laws in the Torah, the first five books of the – are we including all this? What, what exactly – can you clarify for me what commandments you're, you're referring to? Now, I'll let you in on this. This is a little bit of inside lingo between John and his followers. John was the pastor of the church house – group of house churches in Ephesus, and so his followers would have immediately understood this. This is a little bit of common language, but because we are 2,000 years removed from this and, and half a world, half a what, half a world around, halfway around the world, halfway around the world, I need some coffee, halfway around the world, you know, we're playing a little bit of catch up here, aren't we? So um, we need to take a step back here to fully understand what John is saying and recap a little bit of what we know about John, his teachings, and uh, his writings, and his followers. So first, let's talk about your Bible, okay? Your Bible is published as a single book, but in reality, it's a library, isn't it? It's got 66 books inside of your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. If you have a Catholic Bible, you got a bonus section in there, an Old Middle Testament, even more books. But if we were to lay out the New Testament on a bookshelf, it would look like this. I hope you all can see it. It's a little small, isn't it? Uh, but you got some... It's some historical books 
up at the beginning there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts. Um, the first four are called the Gospels. They are the historical accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. All right, four different accounts. Then you've got a whole bunch of letters, uh, mostly written by Paul. Then you've got some more letters that are written by some other apostles, uh, Peter, and you've got 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in there as well. And then the last book is a book of prophecy called The Revelation, The Revelation of Jesus. All right? But if we were to reorganize this bookshelf a little bit and just categorize it by author and, and zoom in on John's writings, this is what it would look like. Okay? This is called the Johannian Corpus. I told you I was going to get a little nerd vomit on you. Sorry about that. Um, but this is called the Johannine Corpus, all right? This is, uh, it's just a fancy way of saying that uh, these are John's writings, John's body of work. So John wrote the Gospel of John. That's his earliest writing. And I want you to understand that you need to understand that all these books are related. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the letters, and then the book of Revelation as well. And so if there's something that we are unclear about, there's something we don't understand, it's wise of us to always go back to and think of God, the Gospel of John as kind of the Rosetta Stone, all right? That's going to unlock some of the meanings for us in some of these other books. So let's do that. Keeping his commandments. That's what we're, that's the, the phrase in question right now. Let's go back to the Gospel of John and see if we can find the answer to this. And in chapter 13, it says this. Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people, all people will know you are my disciples. How will they know? If you have love for one another. Okay? Jump ahead, chapter 15. The Gospel of John, verses 12 through 14. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends you do what I command you. And then again in verse 17, Jesus says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Okay, so now I think we're on the same page as John and his followers. When he says, keep his commandments, his followers would immediately understood, okay, he's talking about the command that Jesus gave us to love one another, to lay down our lives for one another. <clears throat> okay, and but I think if we continue to look at 1 John, we're going to see this emerge even more. We're going to see this theme of loving one another emerge even more. So let's go on. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So hold on to that in your head for just a second. Hate, darkness. Hate equals darkness. Let's look at chapter 3. He says, For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So chapter 2, chapter 3, almost the exact same thing he's saying, just a little twist. 
Hate equals darkness. Hate equals death and more. Okay, so let's remember who John is writing this to and what's happening to the church at this point. This is, as Pastor said last week, about 60 years after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus and Jesus doing his thing. Okay, and so John is, is probably the only living eyewitness, uh, certainly of the apostles, left here at this time. And what's happened is the Gnostics and some other groups have come in and sown some confusion among the church. And there's been some kind of tragic thing happened. Some scholars think maybe even a church split has taken place. All right? And so we know that there was once this tight-knit group of followers of Jesus, and they've begun to be uh, siphoned off, siphoned away. And there's been some deep hurt and arguments John is writing here to tell them, don't let hate get its hooks in you. And so my question here is, can you relate? Have you ever had somebody close to you hurt you? Have you ever had somebody that you love dearly reject you? Somebody betray you? Have you ever had somebody uh, gossip about you, lie to you, who's supposed to be your friend? supposed to be your partner, right? Have you ever felt that anger and resentment begin to consume you and consume your thoughts? And all you can think about is the injustice that was done to you by that person that you loved. Man, I know I've been there, right? There was several years ago, my wife and I were youth pastors at a church in Wisconsin, and we walked through pretty rough situation similar to this where uh, ironically it was another pastor and his wife and staff that began to uh, hurt us and we were deeply scarred deeply hurt and I remember trying to work through this these feelings and, and this anger and uh, I came across the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks a lot about anger and revenge and he says things like don't try don't seek revenge you know don't uh, don't try to get even instead when somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Instead, uh, when somebody forces you to go to a mile, go an additional mile just to bless them. And then in verse 44 of Matthew 5, he says this, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so I, I remember thinking, okay, God, I'm going to put you to the test here. I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to take this literally. I'm going to put you to the test and see if this changes anything. And so we did things, you know, where we would drop stuff off on their doorstep just to bless them and I'll be honest it, it, that didn't really change the situation that didn't change their attitude towards us or any of the things they were doing to hurt us but where this really took fruition for me was in that last line pray for those who persecute you and it took me a little while to get past you know the the prayers of God make them look stupid prayers you know God let truth come to light and and let them get what they deserve but once I got to the point where I was able to just open my heart and say, God, bless them. Smile on them. Bless their family. Bless their ministry. Bless them financially. And I began to pour out my heart to God. You know what happened? You know what I realized? Is that my heart towards them changed. And it became impossible for me to hate them. And then it dawned on me that Jesus is not telling us, you better forgive or else God's not. No, 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 no. 
Jesus is doing is giving us the antidote for hate, this prison that we put ourselves in of hate because we're the ones who are constantly thinking about the injustice that was done to us. He's giving us the cure for hate. I had a mentor who used to say it like this, bitterness is the poison you drink hoping that the other person dies. Isn't that the truth? Bitterness is the poison we drink hoping the other person dies. And so what John and Jesus are doing here is saying, don't let hate get its hooks in you. Don't let hate get its hooks in you. He's giving us the cure. The cure and the antidote for this poison is to pray for those who persecute you. Okay, let's keep going. Chapter 3, John goes on. He says this, By this we know love, that he lay down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, like Pastor Jason was saying. Chapter 4, Beloved, let us not love one another, for love is from God. I'm sorry, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that he has, we have loved God, but he has loved us through his son to be the perpetuation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So in these last two sections, chapter 3 4, what John is doing is he's drawing a direct connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. He's saying that these are two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate these two. If we love God, it will be reflected in our love for other people. And Jesus says the exact same thing in Matthew 22. There's uh, somebody who comes up to Jesus and asks him, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And this was a common question people would go around asking rabbis to help quickly get an understanding for that rabbi's interpretation of the law. And based on the rabbi's answer, they would understand, okay, this rabbi is bent more towards helping the poor. And this rabbi over here, okay, he's bent more towards holiness. All right, and so here's Jesus' answer. He gives a really interesting answer. He says, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And what he's doing here is he's quoting from a very famous, very influential passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, this is called the Shema. Everyone say the Shema. Shema. All right. This is such an important passage of Scripture that Jews still today, thousands of years, have prayed this prayer, prayed this portion of Scripture every morning and every night. Every morning and every night. The Shema. Okay. But then Jesus goes on. He adds to it. He says, a second and equally important is to love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. So, what is the mark of a disciple? Love, right? Love. But we have a problem, don't we, in English, right? Because that word love 
can mean a whole lot of different things. Like, I love my wife. I love my kids. But I also really love breakfast tacos. <laughs> There's no other way to say it, y'all, in English. I love breakfast tacos. I don't know why anyone would eat anything else throughout the day. I could eat them all day long, right? I love breakfast. I love March Madness. In fact, later today, I'm in... I'm, I'm Really excited to go watch my Jayhawks hopefully make it to the, the Final Four, Rock Chalk, right? And I'm from Oklahoma. My wife, I married a Sooner. And so I got to tell y'all that uh, there's not much that I love more than watching the Sooners beat the Longhorns. Don't hate, don't hate me. Don't let it consume you. All right? I'm being a hater. I'm sorry. Forgive me. All right? But the word in Greek, okay, because the New Testament was written in Greek, all right? And so the Greek doesn't necessarily have this problem with the word love. They have different words for different types of feelings and love. And the word that the New Testament writers pick up on for, to, to describe the love of God, the love that God has for us and the love that we should have for each other is agape. Agape is an unconditional love because it's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's a choice that one makes in order to uh, bless other people, to seek the well-being of someone other than yourself. It's a choice to act in the best interest of another person. And yes, it extends even to those who reject us and harm us. It's a selfless, sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that lays down its life for others. It's the kind of love that, to be honest, makes no sense in the world's eyes, because it prays for those that persecute it. It turns the other cheek. It puts others' needs ahead of its own. So, the mark of somebody who has been deeply touched by the grace of God is that they show grace to others around them. Now, let's go back real quick to the Shema. Okay? The Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it goes on. And I want to show you something. In in verses 6 through 8, says this, And these words I command you today, you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay. Now, what I want you to understand is that Jews take this literally. Can we throw that scripture up there for me real quick? Um, yeah, so they take this part literally. And, and when they're praying the Shema every morning and every night, what they will do is they will write this scripture on a little scroll, little piece of paper, roll it up, put it in a box, and as they're praying the Shema in the morning and the evening, they'll put it on their forehead, they'll put it on their hand. I've got a picture of it. You guys have that picture? This is what it looks like. See a box there on his head. You see the little straps on his hand? This is called tefillin straps, and he's got another box there attached to his arm. And so they take this part literally. They do this every morning and every night. They pray the Shema, and they attach it to their forehead and to their hand. Okay? And I, I show you that because there's another mark that John writes about. And this time, he writes about it in the book of the Revelation. He calls it the mark of the beast. In Revelation 13, let's see what he says about it. The second beast also forced all people, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, 
to have a mark on their hand or on their forehead. No one could buy or sell without this mark. Now, there's layers of meaning here, okay? Let's just get that out of the way. One of the layers uh, was a literal historic meaning behind this, okay? John was the pastor at Ephesus, and if you know anything about Ephesus of the day, they had a very influential marketplace. And in order to buy and sell in the marketplace, in other words, in order to feed your family or to make a living, you had to first offer, uh, make an offering to the Caesar. And the Romans believed that Caesar was the son of God. And so you can imagine a Christian who worships God alone, right? In order to feed their family, what do you do? In order to make a living, what do you do? Do you make an offering and then get the mark so you can go and buy and sell in the marketplace, or do you not? Okay, so there is this literal meaning. But notice the words here that John intentionally puts in here on the right hand or on their forehead. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right? And John's early writers would have initially, immediately picked up on this. It's another little bit of inside lingo here. And what he's doing is he's comparing the mark of the beast to the Shema. He's drawing a direct parallel, the mark of the beast and the Shema. He's saying the mark of the beast is the anti-Shema. So if the Shema, in Jesus' words, is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, the mark of the beast, the anti-Shema, is to do the opposite. It's when you put yourself above God. It's when you put your own needs above other needs. The mark of the beast is when all your resources go, go to protecting and preserving what you already have. The mark of the beast is when your resources go not to bless others around you in need who are just affected by a tornado, but go to further your own comfort. The mark of the beast is when you use others for your own gain, when you view others as mere objects. Lust is the mark of the beast. Greed is the mark of the beast. Selfishness, hate, mark of the beast. So John is reminding us that when we truly receive God's love and grace, it generates in us gratitude, humility, and commitment to honor and love others in return. See, love gives birth to more love. And as God transforms us, it also transforms the world around us. So imagine with me, as we close here, a community of Jesus followers who took the Shema seriously. We love God with everything we have. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We lay down our lives for those around us. Imagine a community of Jesus followers who did this. What would that community look like? What would a foster care system look like? Would there be kids sleeping in CPS offices? What would the under-resourced neighborhoods of that community look like? Mercy homes, orphanages. Let's pray. Jesus.
us and change us. Mold us. Teach us to be reflections of you as we let your kingdom come through us and with us. As we learn to love you and love others. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to the Freedom Church podcast. We hope that you were inspired and motivated to continue to grow in your faith. Don't forget to subscribe and share with others.